Hey, all you nature nerds. This is You're Gonna Die Out There. Hey, nature nerds, welcome back to You're Gonna Die Out There. Uh, once again, Megan and I are not in the same room. I am in Oklahoma and Megan is in Guam. You're so far but away. I can, I can see her. <laughs> um, so yeah, welcome back. It's good to see you on the little camera, Megan. I hope you're doing well over there. I am. Uh, we miss you. Saber and I are here in the room together. He's uh, very sad you're not here. Oh. Don't worry, I'll be back real soon, Sabres. Um, so, Megan, any announcements? Yes. Anything we uh, need to talk to our I don't think so. family I, about? I do have this like kind of funny story that happened, and I feel like our listeners will enjoy this on some level. My son and I were in the store yesterday, and we're standing in line. And I, I know our patrons will know this because I posted some photos of our trip to uh, Oregon and stuff like that. But my son has like a giant head of hair it's he like does. it's like a huge afro it's it's very large it's amazing and we're standing in line we're like walking up and there's this older couple and this gentleman is like he like leans over and he's like you know he needs to get a haircut and yeah. i was just you know like laugh and like whatever you know and i was just kind of like if i had more cojones <laughs> i would have been like leaned over to his wife and been like he needs to mind his own business <laughs> You know, you know just needs. like something, <laughs> you know what he needs to mind his own business. <laughs> I don't know. It was just like this moment. And my son, you know, just kind of like we just kind of laughed it off, whatever, sit right, in line. Right, right. Um, later, I was telling him like, hey, if people talk like that, you know, there's lots of things that you could do. And obviously, you know, like I would have liked to have said something maybe to like defend your hair because it's what you want. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we're going to be standing in line with them. <laughs> so I I had to. So he was like, what would it matter if you're standing in line? And they're just like right there. And I was like, well, then it would just be really awkward. And I don't want to be really awkward in the store. So, well, and anyway. also sometimes old people, you know, you just let it slide. Yeah, you just just let it slide. It, it was fine. I mean, he didn't do anything. He didn't touch Damien or his hair or me or anything like that. It was just like. Right. It wasn't <sighs> derogatory. So he just was just me, having his old man it, opinion. Yes. And it made me think about how kids now, like Damien's generation or whatever, they're just like so accepting and so nice. And I love it. <laughs> and we're just... I have hope for the future. We're just angry. We're just angry, crotchety people. But like, yes. <laughs> at least I'm not trying to just, you know, insert my opinions. Anyway, I thought you guys might enjoy that little story. Well, his hair is great. That's all. We love it. It is great. At some point, probably he should cut it just a little. Just saying. <laughs> well, he I'm needs still, I'm yeah, still going for, sure, for the for kid sure. plate. I mean, just shave the sides <laughs> up. That's all I ask. He could do it. <laughs> Absolutely. So. Yes, your science news. Let's hear um, it. My mom sent this to me. And I think it's mm-hmm. very appropriate to talk about because it's actually a place in Texas, which is just due south of where I'm at right now. So. What? That's right. So it's a little article, and this article it was done by the Earth Site News, and they have a website. I think it's just it's news dot the Earth Site 
www.greatergood.com, I think. But anyway. Is this, is this fake news, Jen? This it's sounds like fake a fake news. news website. No, it's really cute. It was great. So they had, okay, a little, okay. they had a little video and I watched it. And it's, they were actually, there was a lady from there that went to Bracken Cave in Texas, which is near San Antonio. And mm-hmm. it is the home of the largest colony of bats in the world. There's 20 million, million (gasps) free-tail bats that migrate there every spring. I know. So it's not only the largest known bat colony on the planet, but it's also the largest group or collective of warm-blooded animals in the world. Am I blowing your mind? And it's just like right here. My mind is uh, blown. It's blown. Yeah. So she actually, um, the reporter that works for this, the Earth site, she went there and there's a pretty cool little video about it. And because she interviewed this really awesome guy named Merlin Tuttle, and he's the founder of the Bat Conservation International. Okay, wait a second. Yes. I just want to tell you something really quick. I found Merlin Tuttle like a number of years ago because I was looking for a really good picture of a certain kind of bat. Uh And... I subscribe to his newsletter and I get it in my my work email actually. But like, oh, and he takes amazing I, photos. He's great. Yes, yeah. yes, he's super great. Yeah, yes. yeah. So she called him the Jane Goodall of bats, which I thought was pretty cool because he is. He was oh, very sense, knowledgeable. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. so she interviewed him and he was talking about how these bats are. Well, he talked about how that area is a World Heritage site number one, which is pretty cool. But they also, the bats eat up to 200 tons of insects per night. And most of the insects are agricultural pests. So they're saving like billions and billions of dollars for farmers, you know, that wouldn't have, that would otherwise have to buy pesticides and, you know, saving us from eating those pesticides. So they, they play a huge role. So I guess they migrate every spring from Mexico um, and I'm not sure how long they stay there, probably through the warmer months and then they go back. But, um, the problem right now is that in San Antonio, of course, there's a lot of developers that want to expand and expand into oh, no. their area. So there's a campaign going on right now to try to stop this, you know, expansion. So I think if you go to, yeah. they didn't really talk about it too much, but it seems like if you go to the Bat Conservation International site, you can read more mm-hmm. about it and find ways that you can save the bats because bats out. are super cool. We yeah. love bats. They are so they are important. Super cool. Agreed. To every, they're everywhere, right? Different kinds of bats like yeah. insectivores, you know, fruit eating bats and all kinds. There's every kind of bats, little vampire bats, but they all serve their purpose and are hugely important to every ecosystem. So Anyway, I thought it was amazing. I didn't realize that Texas had the largest colony of bats in the world. So there you go. Yeah. Well, you know why? Because everything's bigger in Texas, Jen. <laughs> you don't mess with Texas, <laughs> Megan. So, and it's just uh, it's just so right good. there. But, you know, Oklahoma's cool, too. So just saying. Next week, I will have some Oklahoma nature news. But I just wanted to share this one first. Okay. There you go. That was great. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. I'm glad you did. <laughs> Little so, bats. I'm excited for your story. I have no idea what you're talking about because we don't get to talk as much as we usually do since we're on different, it's completely true. different time zones. 
All right, Jen. So today I'm going to talk about a place called Kananura. It's in Australia. I mm-hmm. think I'm saying that right. I, lo- I watched a lot of videos of Australians pronouncing it. And it is an area that before colonizers showed up, the Mirwong Aboriginal people, um, they're actually part of like a larger language group that's similar to the Maori language. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lived in this area. It's located in the northwest of Australia. And this area was first explored by European folks, uh, Alexander Forrest, his name, the first explorer, is in 1879. Area, is that area up there called the Torres Strait? Is that what it's called? <sighs> is that up there? Maybe. I always forget the different zones of Australia. I'm so sorry. Hold on. This is a outback, kind of sh- like outback country. I shall Google while you talk. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so Alexander Forrest explored this area in 1879. And as explorers do, Jen, he named uh, a lot of the areas that obviously already had Aboriginal names. Uh, but he renamed them things like the Kimberley, which is a plateau region we're going to talk a little bit more about, um, and the Margaret and Ord Rivers and the King Leopold Ranges. So okay, that's those are some of the areas around there. Cool. Okay, so there's Torres Strait is that when you get to the very tip of Australia on that kind of north eastern side, it's the little like strait, I guess, between Australia and Papua New Guinea. Oh, yeah. Yes, it is up there. It's at the kind of like uh-huh. tip end. All right. All right. Okay. Yes. Cool. You're cool. right. Oh, there you go, Jen, with your geography. What, mm-hmm, what? Mm-hmm. Um, so Alexander also at this time was a land agent. And in 1883, he helped to lease over 51 million acres in that region, right? He's leasing, obviously not his land, but, you know. (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) He's leasing whose land here? He's just like, I mean, he, you know. Look at this land. It's it's the aboriginal, (laughs) right. It's mine now. I looked at it. My eyes fell on it and it's mine. I put a flag Uh, on it. So in 1887, (laughs) right. My flag, it's all good. In 1887, he also becomes the first member for the Kimberley in the Western Australia Legislative Council, uh, which at that time had a really small population. So it's like he goes out there, he quote unquote discovers it, uh, he names it, he leases it out to people. And Mm -hmm. then he's like, I'm also going to write the laws for this area. I'm going to be in the Legislative Council. That is straight from the colonizer handbook, step by step. You know what? He was like chapter one. (laughs) <laughs> he read by a flag. He read the book. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He did. All right. So at that time, they were thinking about doing some sugarcane production in the area, um, mm-hmm. which is also a very popular thing to do as a European colonizer, uh, make a sugarcane plantation. But it didn't work out. So a few years earlier, so this is like early 1880s, there was this family that had showed up there. Uh, the name is the Dirac family. I think I'm saying that right. Um, they show up and they establish four cattle stations. So I'm assuming they leased some of this land from Alexander Forest and they start these four cattle stations. And one All of those right. stations is called the Ivanhoe. And it's really close to the Ord River Valley. And there's this wonderful soil there. It's like great alluvial soils. That's soils that have been deposited in a floodplain or the riverside. They're super fertile. Like think about uh, the Fertile Crescent, you know, the beginning of civilization, like those kinds of soils. That's what we're talking about here. All right. So they're like, you know what? We are going to grow some cash crops in this area as well. We already have these cattle. 
They love it. We're going to also grow some cash crops. And just a snippet about the Durack family. Patrick Durack, also known as Patsy, was born in County Clare, Ireland in March of 1834, and he emigrated to Australia in 1853. I love that his name was Patsy. Um, they didn't say... That's so yeah. Irish. <laughs> it is. And let me just say uh, that every time say, somebody says... Like, well, every time somebody says cash crop, I literally picture like cash growing out of the <laughs> <laughs> growing out of the soil. Yeah. yeah if just only. like money. Like when your parents were I like, just oh, always... you think money just grows on trees. Yeah. It's like that. It's a cash <laughs> You're like, crop. yeah, I learned about it in school. They're called cash crop. <laughs> totally <laughs> right. fine. So Patsy actually made a butt ton of money in the Owens River gold fields in the early 1860s. And then he moved to western Queensland and spent the next 10 to 15 years or so buying and selling land there because that's what you do. And in 1882, he had heard about the Kimberley and all these excellent soils and possibilities for farming. And that's when they moved there. And they set, they had those four cattle things and started thinking about growing stuff. Right. right. Anyway, Patsy organized the droving of 7,250 head of breeding cattle and 200 horses on a 3,000 mile trek. It is the longest undertaken by Australian drovers up to that time. So he was cattle, what cowboy in it, I guess. He, he did um, the damn they thing. Reached he did the damn thing. Uh, they reached the Ord River in two years and four months. It took them two years and four months. They lost half the cattle and a few of the men that were on the trip also died. Yikes. And the venture actually cost them 72,000 pounds, which in today's money is approximately $10.3 million. What? That does not sound <laughs> successful at all. No. I mean, terrible. I don't think it was. Yeah, no. Um, in 1886, Patsy's two oldest sons went by sea and they set up Argyle Station. Um, I'm assuming that's another cattle station on the Bain River. Um, and I guess a bunch of Australians know about this story because Mary Durack, who I think was his wife or daughter, I'm not really sure. She wrote a best-selling story of Patsy's, um, this whole thing, entitled Kings in Grass Castles. So I don't know. Australian listeners, tell us, is that like, is that like a, is that like a required uh, reading, historical yeah, reading, required reading? Exactly. Exactly. Um, but the event that really put Kananora on the map, so to speak, was something called the Lake Argyle and Ord River Scheme. And this scheme seems to have started in the early 1940s, but it took like 20 years to finish. So there are three main ideas to this scheme. Number one is to harness this like monsoon uh, summer rainwater. I mean, there it's kind of a tropically area, right? So it has monsoons, has dry season, wet season, mm -hmm. and then it's kind of like build up season. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, so they're trying to harness all of this rainwater. They wanted to utilize all of these great soils by the riverbeds, and then three. And it, I'm pulling this directly from. I think it was Wikipedia. I'm not sure. It was to exploit the region's proximity to Southeast Asia. Right. And I'm not entirely sure what that means. I'm thinking they're talking about trade routes because it's like 1940. So maybe that's what they were thinking. So the first step was to dam up the Ord River, and then they were going to irrigate 75,000 hectares of land that they previously used for cattle grazing. And then they were also going to use this massive dam to make hydroelectric energy. So they wanted to, I mean, just like how everyone does. Hey, we live kind of close to this desert. We want to use some of this like could be good area because there's like by the riverside is really great, but we want to expand out like let's make a dam. Let's stop nature doing what it does so that we can do what we want to do. 
And yes, manipulate. Yeah, always. always. Um, so then after they make this hydroelectric facility, the intention was to populate the area with farmers who could then, quote, exploit the economically viable combination of resources. So basically grow a bunch of cash crops. Cash. <laughs> but in 1940. What? Um, by 1941, the Western Australian government had established a small experimental farm, but it was unsuccessful and they closed it down in 1945. So it was not working out for them. That same year, there was a joint Commonwealth State Research Station that was established at Ivanhoe Plain, and it experimented with a range of crops as well. They started irrigation construction. So that idea of like irrigating from the dam waters in 1958. So they started making the actual irrigation channels. Um, and I think it was going to be like a separate, smaller diversion dam. I'm not sure if I read that correctly, but they were, they started that construction, the irrigation channels in 1958, and then they completed the first stage by 1963. So like I said, about 20 years or more later, they're actually getting things done. Around that same time, like 1961, that's when they established Kununurra as the actual main town. By 1966, there were 31 farms, but all of the farms had really, they had issues, okay? Number one, they had tropical disease issues, like people, I guess, getting tropical diseases. And then the other issue like, they had, and it only said... Like, what kind of tropical disease? Like, mosquito-borne diseases? Oh, or I, like... I would, I mean, I'm guessing, yeah, I don't know. Um, it didn't I didn't read anything where they were like, oh, they were just like getting uh, Zika or dengue. I don't know. <laughs> dengue. Yeah. Uh, but the other problem that they ran into, it just said birds. And I was like, are they talking about emus? I want to know. <laughs> so like, Long oh, they could have been talking issues. about emus. I wonder if this is what they were part of the great emu war. Right. Yeah. Because those emus were like, they did not mess around. Go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. <laughs> They're pretty sweet. Um, all right. So, but they persevered. The farmers were like, we're going to stick it out. We're going to get this. We're going to get it done. And by 1972, the Lake Argyle Dam was completed. And it is established as one of the biggest artificial dams in the world. And today, Kununurra is surrounded by land where they grow chickpeas, sorghum seed, melons, pumpkins, mangoes, bananas, citrus. Uh, they irrigate pasture. There's a uh, tropical forest and sugarcane. Uh, all of those things are successfully grown. They have been trying to, I read some stuff about, there's like a big production of sandalwood in that area and that they're also trying to start um, hemp production. So, and all I mean, right. makes sense. Uh, and then I guess they did eventually get that sugarcane, like I said, and sugar production now accounts for 33% of the cultivated land in that irrigation area. So um. that's just a little bit of background on some of the stuff they've been doing in Kununurra. And the name, let me just say, the name Kununurra comes from the English pronunciation of the Mirawong, which is that indigenous Aboriginal peoples. Um, the original name was Go No No Rang. It's like G-O-O-N-O-O-N-O-O-R-R-A-N-G. Why? Was that, is that hard that, to say or what's, what's wrong? I mm. guess the English pronunciation <laughs> of that is Kununurra. That's weird. <laughs> they just couldn't say it. I don't know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's what it says. Uh, but go no no wrong means river. Okay. And I guess there's this widespread myth. And I saw it on almost every article except for, I think it was the Wikipedia, where everyone is like, oh, it means the meeting of big waters or big river. But it, it just means river. So apparently a bunch of people, you know, have been perpetuating 
that myth of the name. But okay, um, there were some other considerations for the name of the town. Uh, Kununura Clay was one, and that was just in reference to like all the really great soil there. But the general post office, the Australian general post office GPO said it was too close to the name of a town called Kunamula uh, and that there would be too much confusion in the postal world. They were like, we just can't with that. So they decided to change. So Kunamula is spelled with a C and Kununura originally was spelled with a C. But then they were like, you know what, we'll just change it to a K and it's all good. Everyone will know what we're talking about. Excellent. So that that fixed it, I guess. Well, you know, um, in the end, you need to get your mail, so. Exactly. And I guess they also were, like, really proud of themselves for choosing the name Kananura with a K because of all the areas around there. There's a bunch of places that also start with the letter K. Right. So, I don't know. I didn't list them, but apparently it's a thing. So It's a thing. All right. <laughs> uh, they they came to the agreement on the town name only a few days before the town was like official on the records, which was February 10th of 1961. So that is when Kananura became a town officially. Okay. Um, and like I said, agriculture is still a huge part of that area. Uh, but tourism has become a big moneymaker. And I read through this one tourism article that said, quote, there is a time each year when Kananura, to borrow a very Sydney term, is like Pitt Street. I don't know what that means. The ever-increasing number of, quote, gray nomads, which are baby boomers with their caravans and camping equipment, traveling around Australia means that during the winter months, they descend on their thousands to uh, Kununurra as they make their way around Australia. It is so bad that there are often rows and rows of caravans parked along Highway 1 simply because the caravan accommodation in the town does not match the demand. The problem is that Kununurra is a very long way from just about everywhere, but the town is an ideal base to explore some of the wonders of northwestern Australia. So I guess it becomes in the summer, which is like their winter, right? Because mm-hmm. other side of the earth, it's like very popular for Baby you know, older people who are retired and traveling. Okay. Anyway, so there, I'm going to tell you some of the major attractions. It seems super cool. I watched a lot of YouTube videos, you know, like people who like now live in rolling tiny homes and stuff or like mm-hmm. van life whatever. Uh, A lot of people will go to this area because it's very beautiful. So the first attraction is the Mirama National Park in Hidden Valley. This is on, uh, they gave directions because I read it from a tourist site, okay? It's located on Ivanhoe Road, just two kilometers from the town center. This is a mini Bungle Bungles, which we'll talk about what Bungle Bungles are. Um, Essentially, they're quartz sandstone formations and they're eroded by wind and then this nearby Lily Creek. They're 350 million years old and they're kind of like this beehive shape, like a dome. And then you can see all the different striations for the different rock layers over time. So to me, I I saw it and I was like, oh, it's like if the Grand Canyon and Arches National Park had a baby. (laughs) That would be (laughs) that would be what a bungle bungle is. Yeah. There are four walking or hiking trails at this uh, Mirama National Park. There's the Gurley Wani Garig Banan. What? I don't know. I don't know what I just said. Uh, that's about 2.2 kilometers. There's another gap trail that's about 800 meters. Uh, that's kind of an easy walk. And I guess you can see a really great view of Kununurra through a gap in the ridges. There's a 2.4 kilometer looking at plants nature trail. It says looking at plants in quotations. I love it. Uh, where you can, they'll have like signs where you can ID the plants. And then they also indicate how the Mirawong people used those plants. And then 
lastly, there's this um, other trail. I think it's called Dembong. It's 500 meters and it's a moderately difficult climb that has a lookout over Kananura and the Ord Valley. So you can see like pastures and agriculture and stuff like that. They're like, good day. It's supposed to be a What are you doing? You. Looking at plants? <laughs> <laughs> Just looking at plants on the plant trail. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of wildlife that you're going to see in the park. There's black kites, double bared, barred, and crimson fishes, and white-quilled rock pigeon. Those are the predominant birds. At dusk, you can see and dawn. You can see short-eared rock wallabies, agile wallabies, and dingoes. Yes. So watch your babies, I guess. <laughs> I mean, that joke never that happened old. like one time. I mean, one time. I don't know. Fun fact, rock, rock wallabies are seed dispersers for the boab tree that grow on inaccessible, at least inaccessible to human rock faces. So you have you seen a boab tree before? I'm not sure. I don't know. If I have. They're have super look cool looking. OK, they're like this kind of nightmarish tree, honestly. Uh, I didn't put too much information in there about them, but they have a huge trunk. It's like kind of a bottle looking tree. Like the trunk is massive. I think one of them have, have, has been measured to be like five meters in diameter. Wow. And so it's like a big kind of like bottom and then these like little branches coming up on the top. So huh. it, if you've ever seen the movie Fern Gully, yes. it was actually that is the tree that that like evil dude Hexus was captured in. Oh, so it's kind of okay. like just bulbous, bulbous at the bottom. And then some people call it an upside down tree, I think. Oh, there's some other names for it. Dead rat tree, gouty stem tree, monkey bread tree, cream of tartar tree. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. What was <laughs> cream of tartar. What's the, what was the rat one? Dead rat tree? Dead rat tree. Yeah. That's just rude. There's, I read something and you know what? I don't have it up right now and I cannot, maybe someone will know this, but there was like one of the trees, they called it like a jail tree. Like they would keep prisoners inside of it because it, mm. you, anyway, you, you can use, you can eat the tree. Like I think there's like fruit or nuts or something like that on it. You can eat and it, it like retains water. So Aboriginal peoples have been known to um, like drain water out of it to use, you know, for drinking water, that kind of thing. It's a very like useful a tree. Yes. Yeah. Well, because it is like deserty. Well, yeah, but it's not prickly. <laughs> no, not prickly. Yeah, yeah that's good. Um, all I'll right. Look it up. So you should. It's they're kind of creepy looking. All right. So another location you can visit in Kananura is the Celebrity Tree Park. It is an arboretum opened in 1984 at Lake Kananura, just west west of the town center. Uh, mm -hmm. Fun fact: celebrities including John Farnham, Harry Butler, Rolf Harris, Baz Luhrmann, and her Majesty's, what is it? Her Royal Highness Prince Anne. They have oh. all planted trees in that park. So I don't know who any of those people, except for Baz Luhrmann and Princess Anne, are. Speaking of Baz Luhrmann, I feel like I should know who they are. I just watched uh, oh, that's right. Elvis at the movie theater. Yeah, and because I'm in just the, so I'm in America. It was showing on the IMAX. So it was like I had to sit in the very last row <laughs> so I wouldn't throw up. But it was it was pretty good. You know, very stylized. Not bad. Like he does. I think you said it was like three hours long it was super long it seems yeah so it, long. It, it was a long movie but it was you know it was good uh there is a large boab tree that is at this celebrity tree park so you can go see one there uh the next place you can go to is called el cuestro it is an exclusive resort in the middle of nowhere where, quote, celebrities go to get away from it all. El Cuestro Station is located 106 kilometers southwest of Cananura on the Chamberlain River. Uh, just for your edification, Jen, there are four levels of accommodation. There's the homestead that only has nine rooms. 
uh, the air-conditioned El Cuestro bungalows, the Emma Gorge tented cabins and riverside camping. That's like glamping, maybe. Uh, typical of the properties on either side of the Gibb River Road, El Cuestro is one million acres big. And it has, I guess, a lot of flowers and animals. One and million acres? <clears throat> one million acres. That is 404,685 hectares. That's insane. Only in Australia can you have just that much right? space. Well, and it's, Jen, it's for celebrities. So they need space. They do. They need a lot of space. That's right. Uh, there's also a place called Home Valley Station. I thought this was really neat. Um, it's located 120 kilometers due west of Kununurra and owned by the Indigenous Land Corporation. It is uh, completely owned by Aboriginal uh, folks, and it is used as an on-site training academy specifically designed to train Indigenous people in the hospitality industry. So... I, I mean, I guess it's good they're like getting training on something to make some money mm-hmm. and get something, get something back. I guess. Yeah. At least it's, I guess, yeah, it's theirs, even though it was theirs, but then it's theirs yes. again. Even though it all was theirs. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, hashtag thanks, Alexander Forrest. Can we just have it all back? Right. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. Okay, in this tourism thing, it says it is a very classy accommodation option with a genuine social value. Wow. So there's that. That's fancy. All right. And then lastly, there are the Bungle Bungles in Pernululu National Park. Pernululu National Park. Um, You can get there by driving. It is relatively inaccessible. So only certain vehicles are even allowed on the roads out there. But you can get um, you can join like a tour and they'll take you there via plane, which I watched one of the videos of these people riding the plane. It was really cool. And I think on one of the routes, you go over what's called the Ivanhoe Water Cross, which is literally a road just covered by water from the Ord River. And I saw it on one of the YouTube videos. And it's, you know, they have to like, they go in like a Jeep and they drive over. It's like, it's like driving through a big puddle, but on a road. Hmm. It looks really cool. You should go look it up. Anyway, so the Bungle Bungles is the larger version of the mini Bungle Bungles that I was talking about earlier. I don't know why they chose the name Bungle Bungles. It's so funny to me. But these are the same kind of like <laughs> beehive formations with like all uh-huh. the striations. And they're mm-hmm. three, just like the others, they're 350 million years old. They're super cool. But while you're there, you can see bowerbirds. Have you ever heard of these birds? I'm not sure. Um, the males, they make these things called bowers, which are, they take like sticks or grasses and they line them up next to each other. There's a couple of different formations. One is like kind of a tunnel where they line the sticks up and then kind of make them form the tunnel top, like cross them over at the top. Another version looks kind of like a maypole with a bunch of things going around it. Mm-hmm. And then they collect different colored rocks and objects and like put them out. And that attracts the female. And then they do like a crazy dance, mm-hmm. like a crazy bird dance. Like you do. And the females, if they're like super into it, they'll walk through the little tunnel. And then, you know, that's like the sign that and it's time to get it. it on. Yeah. And then they do it. And then the male cleans it up and then makes it for another female. <laughs> wow this sounds he's very, like on to the next one i don't know it sounds kind of like you know very like a dude thing to do like check out my new apartment yeah look at it it's like, so nice they go out Except to i want you to live here they dress really <laughs> yes. fancy yes. they dance they do some sweet mm-hmm. moves mm-hmm. get the lady to go back yes. to their sweet apartment i don't know I they see do it. it yeah and then they're <laughs> and then done. they do it they go out the next night with another bird that's right <laughs> um success yeah so the sticks 
the walls that they make with the sticks, the bird actually paints the walls with saliva and chewed vegetable matter. And then that's how they get it to kind of stick together. Mm-hmm. They're really cool looking. Um, I will cool. include a picture in the pictures. But yeah, they'll, someone I read, I was like re- reading something or I saw something where they were like, oh, bowerbirds decorate based on the plumage, like their color, the color of their plumage. So like, let's say the bird has like a slight blue tint. He'll find objects that are blue to put out. Or if it's like, like has some white, then he'll find like white rocks and white objects and any kind of object. So can it be like human trash? Like mostly, I guess, back in the day before there was trash, they would use green moss, red berries, silver snail shells. But now they use, you know, like bottle caps and toilet right. paper. I'm sure the snails are happy find. about that. <laughs> yeah. The snails are like placing like shiny things all around so they won't get picked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, these bowerbirds, they get preyed upon by foxes and cats and loss of habitat due to land clearing it has become a significant threat to them. So that's kind of sad. And in Victoria, the spotted bowerbird is listed as endangered because of feral predators and loss of habitat. What well, kind of feral predators? I mean, seriously. I don't want to talk about it, Jen. I mean, Stop it. just saying. <laughs> it's rabbits. A- Rabbits are good. <laughs> Feral. <laughs> it's not cats. Don't totally. talk about cats like that, Jen. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, in areas where there are vineyards and orchards, many spotted bowerbirds were shot by farmers because they were thought to have been eating the fruit of those vineyards and orchards. So that's super lame. There was kind of like this disclaimer that was like, but most species of bowerbirds in Australia are listed as of least concern on the IUCN red list of threatened species. Okay. But still, let's not kill them because they want to eat some berries or something. They sound super cool. What do you make Let wine with? Let them build their cool, t- yeah. like, sexy Grapes. man tunnels. <laughs> this is my sexy man tunnel. Do you think <laughs> that they dance at the other end of the tunnel? Like, do you think they, like, wait for the female to, like, walk? Because there's, like, a little path. They make a little path Does to go to the tunnel. Does it like, a kind so, of, like, like, a shadow dance? Yes. It's like it's like in uh what's that movie with the with the thing with the water, the water flash splashes dance. down <laughs> flash dance? Yeah. It's just She's like you can maniac. see in silhouette. But what's the song that she play that it plays when she does the water thing? <clears throat> I think you're right. Maniac, Maybe. whatever it's called. I don't know. Somebody help us. Someone's yelling it. Right Somebody's now. yelling it. It's gotta be cat yelling help it right us. now. For sure. All right. There is a tour of the Bungle Bungles, which includes a visit to the Argyle Diamond Mine, which is recognized as the world's largest supplier of diamonds. What? Uh, Argyle diamonds are famed because they are they have like a rare pink diamond that you can Mm -hmm. find there. And I think that was all I wrote about that. Wow. I was like, oh, I'm going to say something else about it. I'm not. That's it. Argyle diamonds. (laughs) You can get pink diamonds. It's apparently if you go on the tour, you can get like you can buy a diamond. I mean, that kind of makes sense. Just dropping wads of cash for fancy diamonds. I'm hoping that it's like they're ethically mined diamonds. I'm assuming that if they're like, wow, this is the largest diamond mine in the world. They're like boasting that because they're also like ethical about it. But I hope so. Yeah. Uh, So, okay. Let's move on to what are called the Kimberleys. This is a plateau region of northern west northwestern Australia that extends from the northwest Indian Ocean coast south to the Fitzroy River and east to the Ord River. It is about 162,000 square miles or 420,000 square kilometers. In the northern Kimberleys, there is a decent amount of rainfall, but in the south near Kununurra, they average about 15 inches or 380 
what is that millimeters annually. Mm-hmm. So in contrast, Kununurra, which is bordered by the Kimberleys to the west, gets 800 millimeters or 31 inches in a year. So basically the Kimberleys, which is where our story takes place today, gets about half the amount of rain. It is more arid, uh, more deserty than Kununurra, which is very close and bordered by the Kimberleys to the west. Cool, cool. So the dry season in this region is from April to September. And this is the time that most people will visit because there's lower humidity and lower heat. The parks are more accessible. And in fact, the Bungle Bungles, you cannot go there um, during the wet season. You can only go during the dry season because it's too dangerous during the wet season. Um, And then typically August and into the beginning of September, there's zero rain in that area. Maybe they'll have like a little bit one year, but most of the time they're rainless months. Uh, During the following season, from October to December, they call this the buildup season. And there's high heat and humidity, and there are a lot of electrical storms, but not with rain. So it's Hmm. just like a lot of lightning and electrical storms. At that time, the landscape is subject to bushfires. So that becomes an issue, obviously, or it's like Mm -hmm. part of the natural processes. The summer monsoon season lasts from January to March. And due to the heavy rainfall, like I kind of mentioned, accessibility to these parks or these areas becomes uh, an issue. So a couple fun facts before we move on to talking about bushfires. In 1963, Kununurra was visited by Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, and the Ord River Irrigation Area was officially opened by Prime Minister R.G. Menzies on July 20th in 1963. And then Nicole Kidman feels that the area's water helped her get pregnant while filming in Kununurra, stating, quote, seven babies were conceived out of this film and only one was a boy. There is something up there in the Kununurra water because we all went swimming in the waterfalls so we can call it the fertility waters now. Wait. So I guess if Nicole you want to go kid? get pregnant. Yeah. With the uh, with the singer, right? Oh. Uh... She did not have one with Tom Cruise. She had one like later, later in life. Really? I vaguely remember that. Yeah. Well, I knew she had, they adopted, like her and Tom Cruise adopted two kids. Right. And I didn't know yeah. she had more after that. Then she, I'm, I've, I've been yeah, keeping I'm almost up with positive. The, my celebrity uh, news. Your celebrity gossip. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, right. get that well, subscription anyway, to Us cool. Weekly. Yeah. Okay. And I guess if you want to get pregnant, go to uh, Kananura. Or if you don't want to get pregnant, don't ever go to Kananura. I don't know. Right. I'm good. <laughs> Fun stuff. All right. So let's talk for a second about bushfires. So we've learned about the seasons. I just talked about them, those three seasons. There's like the dry season, the buildup, and then the wet season. But after the dry season, the buildup season, the possibility of fire increases. And bushfires are fast spreading fires that burn through grass and woodland. They can be caused by human negligence, but also lightning. And in Australia, this kind of fire is actually a 50-50 split. So half the time it's human, half the time it's natural. Okay. And I was reading someplace that said something like in America, it was in an Australian article. So I don't know if they were just putting this in as like, you guys suck, but they were like, in America though, it's like four out of five fires are human set. So I don't know. Stupid jerks. Australia is better. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And we've talked about lots of stuff with fire on previous episodes. So I'm just going to kind of rip through these real quick. Um, A wildfire moves at speeds of up to 14 miles per hour, and grass fires pass in 5 to 10 seconds but smolder for minutes. Uh, Bushfires generally move slower, but they're hotter, meaning that they'll pass in 2 to 5 minutes but can smolder for days. Mm. So these fires are particularly common in areas that experience hot, dry weather like Australia, 
Greece, Africa, and parts of the U.S., like California. Mm-hmm. And we've, I think we've done a fire story in California before, right? Um, we definitely have done a science news about yeah, California. We did a science uh, news fire we, we didn't do a full episode, but I think we're, we're planning to. Right. Some people have sent us some suggestions. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And just like we've said before, it should be noted that climate change doesn't start bushfires, but it does cause them to become larger and more ferocious because the dry season or droughts are more intense. So yep. uh, traditionally, the First Nations people of Australia and um, Aboriginal people used fire to manage the landscape, just like many indigenous people in the U.S. We've talked about that before. These kinds of fires can become dangerous very quickly, especially if they are near communities And of course, wildfires also help keep ecosystems healthy. Uh, They help certain plants release seeds. They can also kill off insects and diseases that harm trees or the environment. And then at a low intensity, flames can clear up debris and underbrush on the forest floor, add nutrients to the soil, and open up space to let sunlight through that helps nourish smaller plants and give larger trees room to grow and flourish. So Mm -hmm. there are benefits and there are, you know, downsides, pros and cons to bushfires. All right. So now I'm going to talk about a woman. Her name is Taria Pitt. And this story is a suggestion that came from one of our patrons, Kristen White. Thank you so much, Kristen, for that suggestion. Thank you. All right. So Taria Pitt was born in 1987. I had to do the math on that. I never read anything where it had like her exact birth date, but I believe she was born either in 1985 or 1987. She spent her childhood in Ulladulla, a small town in New New South Wales. Growing up, she was well known for her athletic abilities. She loved to run. She's very athletic. Mm -hmm. And then she tells this story. I watched this TED talk that she did. And she tells a story about how she wasn't, she didn't really care about school so much, like academically. She wasn't super into it. But she had this teacher who was like, you basically are never going to make it in life because you are not good at your academics. And she took that as a challenge. And after that conversation, she was like top of her class. What is wrong with these Like people? straight A's, just, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And it was great because in the TED Talk, I forget the teacher's name, but she was just like, I had all these academic accomplishments after that. Uh, so you can suck it, Mr. Whatever his name was. And it was very funny. But let's I just laugh. say, don't all, but, you know, sometimes for some people that does challenge yes. them. But for other people, it, it makes it worse. Really, it makes it worse. So just, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. So she's always had this kind of competitive drive in her. And she equates it to uh, when people tell her that she can't do something, it's like uh, waving a red cloth in front of a bull. Like she's going to do it even harder then. Mm-hmm. So she ended up earning a Bachelor of Engineering in Mining and a Bachelor of Science in 2010 from the University of New South Wales. I think later she did also get her master's in engineering. Anyway, I read this article that she wrote about when she was a kid. Her dad took her and her brother out on this adventure. Um, It was something that he regularly did. She describes these adventuring outings as like unusual. She said, quote, there was the time he made us collect a dead fish from the beach so he could wrap it in chicken wire and preserve the skeleton as a kind of signpost for the windy track down the beach. And then the all day bike ride with nothing but a packet of Arnott's milk arrowroot biscuits to sustain us. And then the time that we had to peel the stickers off a a zillion jam jars that he used to replace a window my brother Genji had fired a slingshot bullet through. 
So I guess he's just always having to do kind of weird stuff. Yeah. But outside and like very active. Right. Uh, and then this trip that she's writing about is a canoeing trip on uh, in a local inlet. He wanted to go and collect some rabbit traps that were up on this other piece of property. And he wanted the kids to go along. But that day, Taria was like not into it. She was she was like, I want to stay home. I want to chill out. You know, mom is coming home with groceries later. She's going to need help unloading the car. Like, I should stay here. And she kept making these excuses. She's oh, it's like, raining outside. Mom, like, bought some Oreos today. <laughs> I need to check that out. Right? Yeah. I need to be here for that. Yes. Um, and I, yeah, it was like raining. She just, she kept making these excuses. And in the end, you know, he he always had like a thing, like a workaround. Well, you'll just wear your wellies. Oh, you'll just put on a jacket. Like, we'll figure it out, you know? Mm-hmm. And she just kept saying stuff. And he was like, you know what? At the end, he was like, he did this thing that I do to my son sometimes, where it's like, as a parent, you're like, whatever. He says, that's enough. He barked, slamming his fist down. We're going. And that's that. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, we've all done that. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you just have to do that. Like, mm-hmm. just stop. Stop your bitching. We're going to do this thing. This is happening. No choice. Yeah. She says, 20 minutes later, Genji and I are in our wetsuits, pushing a canoe out into the inlet. We all jump into the one boat and clumsily start to paddle. The tide is sucking us out into the ocean. The southerly is howling and hard bullets of water pelt our backs. But her dad is super into it. He's laughing and he says, and I cannot do the Australian accent, so I'm not even going to try. What a cracker of a day, eh, kids? He beams at us. Now this, this is going to be character building. Uh, she goes, I'm paddling as hard as I can. So is my brother. And we haven't gained any ground. Come on, kids, paddle. Get your backs into it. Hot tears roll down my cheek. I can feel a blister starting to form on my palm. I'm miserable and I'm freezing. I think glumly of the groceries back home, imagining a scalding bath, a cup of warm milk and a Milo and cozy, a Milo and a cozy afternoon spent catching up with whatever adventures the Mealing Sisters would be having in the next All in the Blue, Unclouded Weather, my favorite new book by Robin Robin Klein. Sorry, that was hard to read for some reason. <laughs> there's a lot of Australian. There's a lot of Australian information in that sentence. Like, I'm like, I don't know what any of these things are. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that makes somebody in Australia feel like very cozy. I don't know. But we're like, basically, it seems we don't like understand she just, any of that. I, I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, is a Milo like a biscuit? Is it like a cookie? She just wanted to be sitting, reading a book under a blanket, being happy. Eating Oreos. <clears throat> but instead, she, that's she's... What she meant. Yeah, exactly. Instead, she's out, you know, in a canoe in the freezing rain, hating life. So uh, she says, my dad's hoarse yelling interrupts my thoughts and I'm snapped back to reality. My 10-year-old muscles are fatiguing. I'm frozen like a piece of ice at the bottom of the esky. My teeth start chattering incessantly. We're not born with resilience. It's not genetic. It's learned. Okay, good work, kids. My brother and dad stopped paddling. We're around the bend and the current is no longer noticeable. And as if it had finally caught on to dad's unfailing optimism, the sun had burst through the clouds, streaming down in warm, fat bands of yellow. Dad would say this type of stuff was what would make us strong, gritty, resilient. And as a kid, I never really understood what he meant. But now, with two kids of my own, I think I'm beginning to understand. The only way we become resilient is by going through testing experiences. We're not born with or without resilience. It's not a genetic trait. It's learned. Walking up that steep hill on the bush when you could easily just turn back instead. Going back to uni to take take on that master's degree with your kids at home and a full-time job in tow. Pushing forward with your side hustle even when sales are slow and you're tired and over it all. Paddling a canoe in the pouring rain. Doing the tough stuff makes you tougher. 
it's true. Um, I really like that article. Yeah, it's great. Very inspirational. Mm -hmm. All right. So when she is 11, Turia meets this guy. His name is Michael Hoskin. He's a friend of her brother's and they're good friends. And then eventually when they get to high school, they start to date. They're like in love. Mm -hmm. They love each other. In her 20s, (laughs) right? It's nice. In her 20s, Turia is an active runner and into ultra marathons. And when she's 26, she hears about an ultra marathon that's going to be happening in the Kimberleys. And so she signs up and I think it was like one of two marathons she was planning on doing. Um, It was like I heard in one interview that it was very last minute, like she had heard about it two weeks out and was ready to run it because she was already so super fit. Like, she's like, I, I have two weeks to prepare for this ultra marathon. No big deal. Wow. I'm like, I need two decades <laughs> to prepare for an ultra marathon. <laughs> I was going to say two years, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't yeah. know in two decades that I'd be too much better. <laughs> just I mean, I <laughs> maybe go back in two decades. I, could you go back yeah. in time? I mean, I know you like running, Jen, so... This run, this uh, ultra marathon is going to happen on September 2nd of 2011. It is 100 kilometers long. It goes through the Kimberley region alongside Kununura, but in the bush, like not near the river, kind of in the Mm -hmm. bush area of the Kimberleys. The organizers of the race are a company called Racing the Planet. They're based out of Hong Kong. And for this particular race, there was this married couple. I think they're American because the woman was in a video that I watched and she sounded American. Maybe they're Canadian. I'm not sure. They are this couple, a married couple. They're in charge of this particular race in the Kimberleys. And the wife, she decided that actually she wanted to participate in the day of the race. So really, it's the husband who's running the whole event for that day. I assume that they have other people helping them, you know, like volunteers, whatever you have for Mm -hmm. races. Mm -hmm. But it was like, the wife is running. So she's not involved in the actual execution that day, which I don't know if that was a really great idea. Uh, Then they had hired one helicopter for a media crew to film the race, but they refused to hire another helicopter in case of emergency or to medevac any competitors that were in this race. Mm. And I also read conflicting reports that they didn't contact ambulance services to have them on standby in case of any issues. But I'm not 100% on that ambulance thing. But I do know that they were like, we don't need a second helicopter for Medivac. That's not needed. Also that day, um, there was a bushfire off in the distance. Because we're talking about September. It's like early September. But there had already been a bushfire. And there were like a number, I guess, in that area on the day of. But there was one particularly close to the racing route. I see where this is all coming together. (laughs) It's just a disaster. You're building a disaster. (laughs) I'm building it. Are you sure, though? I mean, well, it's just going to be mean, a race. That's all I'm going to talk about. I think about sometimes for, you know, if you're joining a race or a marathon or whatever, like I feel like a lot mm-hmm. of people wouldn't, they would just assume that emergency services are ready. You know, that it's yes. already there. It's prepared. <clears throat> the, the people in charge took care of that. You would kind of think yes. a lot of people, you know, may not question it. Right. Well, especially this is in 2011 when, you know, already there have been lots of racing disasters that have happened in the world. You would think, oh, you Mm -hmm. need to be prepared. Right. Well, that's not necessarily the case in this case. So uh, Racing the Planet did not check in with fire and emergency about any of the risk 
to the race course or the runners in terms of this fire. And in later inquiries, it would also be found out the organizers didn't check their communication systems prior to the start of the race. Oh, boy. So there's that, too. Mm-hmm. All right. So on that day, Taria um, is going to be running. I see a I see a what? lawsuit or um, a cash crop in the future. <laughs> <laughs> a cash crop in the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I see this not going Um, well. It's going to go poorly. So there's another runner with Taria that day. They're not running together, but they end up together later. So her name is Kate Sanderson. And she says, when I saw a 100 kilometer ultramarathon through Australia's Kimberley region with its rock formations and red dust, I didn't hesitate. Of course, this part of the world is hot. On the bus journey to the starting line at 5 a.m., it was already heating up. I knew it'd be 30 degrees before I'd cross the start line. Which, you know, we're talking about 30 degrees Celsius, Celsius, not Fahrenheit. Yeah. Because Australia. Yes. Uh, Sitting with my friend Hal, I looked out of the window. I knew I was well prepared, fit, and I had the compulsory gear. Food, spare clothes, water, whistles, space blankets. No GPS watches or mobiles were allowed, though. So you couldn't tell where you were on the course and grab an adventure. I think she means you couldn't just like run off wherever you wanted to run off to. You had to stay on the course. Right. I still don't understand why you weren't allowed to have a mobile phone with you. That seems like not Mm -hmm. smart. Mobiles. Yeah. All right. So in total, there are 40 runners doing this run. And just like in any run, they take off. The faster people take off, you know, quicker. And people start to get spaced out from one another. Right. So it's like you all start out as a big bunch and then you run and then you get spaced out. Like I would be in the very, very back. Jen would be like closer towards the front. No, no, no. (laughs) I'd be somewhere towards <laughs> middle to back for sure. But this reminds sure, sure. me of the marathon this this sob. Isn't that what it has? The sob. Yes. Yeah. Yes. A little bit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, it's also an ultra marathon. Yeah, absolutely. And it's through the desert. So yeah. Through the desert. Just a little bit of a different desert. Are some bats gonna get eaten or drained? <laughs> Just asking. No, no bats. No bats okay. in this story. Yeah, That'd yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> oh God. That would be so awful. I mean, you guys do what you got to do, but, you know, poor bats. I mean, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you guys all remember the bat milkshake. The the idea of making a bat into a milkshake just, yeah, that still kind of turns my stomach. All Mm -hmm. right. Uh, So there's actually some video footage of Taria running in the beginning of the marathon. I saw it. She looks great. She looks relaxed and happy. I'm watching her run over this rugged terrain, and she just looks like... It's a walk in the park. No big deal. She's like, what? She's talking. Okay, (laughs) I would be I would be wheezing like I would not be. I'd be like, (gasps) you know, dying. (laughs) So she's she this is she's into this. This is like her happy place. Um, I think she even cheers when she runs by the camera like, yeah, this is a great day. You know, just right. Right. She's into into it. it. Yeah. At the 24 kilometer checkpoints, about a fourth of the way through, there's smoke and you can actually see in the video, you can see fire off in the distance. Because like I said, they had this camera crew there who's like filming everything. Um, And so, yeah, you can see the smoke and like the fire off in the distance, but it's like pretty far away. And at this point, there's some some footage of the husband organizer guy talking to his wife who was running, like came into the checkpoint and they kind of expressed to each other that everything seems to be fine. Like, yes, there's smoke. Yes, there's that fire, but no worries. Everything's good. Just everyone can keep going. Mm -hmm. At this point, 
the terrain gets a little more difficult for the runners and they have to really focus on the ground because every step could be an injury, right? There's a lot of rocks in this area. And there's they're kind of in this like valley, like gorge area where it's like there's some vegetation, but it's just like a lot of rocks and it's gravelly. So they have to look down. It was at this time that Taria, Kate and her friend Hal and a couple other folks were all kind of together. Like they were all running around the same place and they enter what's called Tears Gorge or Tear Gorge, T-I-E-R. And it's basically like this valley area, but like, you know, these cliff faces, not really cliffy, but like rocky outcrop areas that are Mm -hmm. putting them into like a V. And unbeknownst to them, the faster runners who had already been through that area had reported to the next checkpoints that their fire was getting closer to that area and that folks needed to be alerted at the 24-kilometer checkpoint to divert, like go around that gorge. Mm -hmm. And Taria remembers looking up and seeing that actually the fire that had originally seemed far off in the distance was now very close and moving rapidly. And Kate recounts, Then I looked up and I saw a fire across the gorge about 500 meters away. Quickly looking around for other people, six of us grouped together. At first, we weren't hugely worried, but just seconds later, the fire had leapt closer. There was vegetation in the gorge and the flames were tearing through it. Taria says that she had seconds to decide to go up the rocky outcrop where the flames would be higher, like maybe even hotter, Mm -hmm. or... Should she stay down near the vegetation? But the vegetation that is getting eaten by the fire is like shoulder height. So she was like, probably rocks would be better. Maybe I can like, I mean, she has like seconds to make this decision. Uh Um, And both she and Kate made the same decision. They're like, we're going to the rocks. There's less fuel there. We can hide under the rocks or something. We can like hide in a crevice. Kate says, but even in the few seconds it took to make that decision, the fire was even closer. We need to go now, guys. Follow me, I said, taking off first with everyone behind me. Running as fast as we could up that hill, the flames came faster and faster. Taria, one of the other runners, started to cry. I'm scared, she said. Don't worry, mate, I replied, trying to appear calm. Inside, I was terrified. Um, Kate ends up putting on another shirt. She, like, stops running and is trying to get on this other shirt to protect herself. Of course, this would take us seconds to do. Seems, Mm -hmm. like, smart, right? But it's at that point that the fire catches up to her and she can see it rushing like onto her. <clears throat> she oh instinctively, God. I don't know how, I don't know how she thinks of this. She takes her drinking water and throws it on her head, puts her hands in front of her face and crouches down into a crevice. She says, in those final seconds, my mind was blank. All I could feel was the unbearable burning on my exposed legs and body. <gasps> With my hands oh my over God. my face, I couldn't see if it was clothes or my body burning, but the heat was suffocating and my skin was peeling and blistering. I couldn't stand it another second. I stood up to run. That's when the flames engulfed me. (gasps) Screaming in pain, my instinct took over. I ran with my hands over my face, trying to protect myself. I had only one thought. This is what it's like to die in a fire. Oh, my God. That happened fast. Awful. Very fast. Wow. So some of the people in their group had actually stopped, turned around, turned around, and jumped through the fire. That was like more in the vegetation area. But Taria and Kate ran up the rocky outcrop Mm -hmm. and they had very similar experiences. Taria says, I remember the hot Kimberly sun beating down, burning my already burnt skin. I remember accidentally sitting on a bull ant nest, staring in confusion as the ants started swarming across my legs. I remember trying to drink some water, but spitting it out because it was boiling hot. I remember seeing bits of my skin stuck to the rocks and spiniflex. 
I remember thinking about Michael, my Michael, she said. I remember telling myself, think of his warm face, think of his honey voice, think of his golden skin. Keep thinking about Michael. Um, Kate says, slipping on the rocks, no idea where I was going. I fell down a hill. I have no idea how far I traveled, but rolling over and over, put out the flames. I can't believe I'm alive, I thought in shock as I stood up. So those other runners who had kind of like run and jumped through the fire, I mean, they had some injuries, some like maybe second degree burns, I think. Uh, But they came back to find these two women who had experienced 60% of their body had been burned. Oh, my God. I think for Turia, it was like 75%. So her whole, her whole face, her hair, like everything, her body from head to toe. Um, oh. Kate, because she had put the water over her face and held her hands over her face, she didn't have as bad of a situation. Like her face didn't get burned the same way right. that Turia did. Turia says, I remember the bubbling feeling of panic as the hours dragged on, wanting to be rescued needing someone to tell me everything was going to be okay. I remember the sun starting to set, the heat starting to dissipate, the breeze becoming cold. I remember saying, I don't know if I can stay much longer. And then I remember salvation. So they were on that rocky outcrop for over four hours waiting on somebody to rescue them. They, like all the people who were there with them, those other people who had like experienced the burns, other runners who were coming up on this, right? Mm-hmm. And then they were they have, were able to like alert some people like, on a nearby road, like, hey, we need some help. So there were other people who were coming to kind of try and help as much as they could. But it's like, you can't move these women. Like they're, they're like, they can't move. (laughs) Right, right, right. So there are people having to go Um, get help and then bring help back. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And it's, and where they are, they can't get like a vehicle through. It has to be a helicopter that's going to come in to get, there has to be some kind of airborne vehicle that's going to come and get them. So uh, they, the people who were with them put up reflective blankets to attract attention. They tried to help cover the women. They tried to give them water, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, they see a helicopter and they're like, oh, thank God, they're going to rescue us. But the smoke was so bad, the helicopter couldn't land. And so a little while goes by, they see another helicopter. This time it's that media helicopter mm-hmm. that the race had hired. But they couldn't land because they had a camera strapped to the bottom of the helicopter. So they didn't land. Wait, 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 wait. So there, she was, yeah. So they couldn't, well, how would they have landed normally? Couldn't they just take the... Right. You know what I mean? I mean, the, they had to the, land the at some camera point. off. Like, I also had that same, like, what? Like, I don't know if it was, like, strapped to the bottom bottom or if it was, like, hanging off the side. Or I don't know why they couldn't get rid of that freaking camera and go rescue these people. Yeah, that's... I don't know what that situation was, mm-hmm. but she says there was a second hol- helicopter that came and it didn't help them and it left. And so the people, like I said, the people in that surrounding area, they're, they're still helping those women. In that time, Taria says she saw someone she knew. It was either a first responder or another runner. And she was like, hi. <laughs> like she, when she tells the story, it's like after they got burned, you know, she's in intense pain, but still like communicating with people, kind of like in a haze a little bit. I'm mm-hmm. sure in shock, like complete Total shock. shock. For sure. <clears throat> and the woman, after she says hi to this woman, the woman looks at her just super confused. And then she says, it's me, Taria. And like, they've known each other for a while. And this woman just starts silently crying. Oh like, my gosh. This is a person I know. And she does not look like the person I know. Yeah. So there's this guy, Paul Paul Cripps, he's this uh, kind of amazing helicopter pilot who was able to land the helicopter in the gorge um, 
it was like he had to land it on this really small piece of landing and it was this whole thing. He was, I don't know, if he hadn't shown up, they would have died, basically, is what I understand from this story, is that he was like the only person who could have like gotten this helicopter where they needed it to be to get them rescued. Right. And Taria considers him her savior. She says, he had rescued me from a literal life or death situation. He had removed me from the blistering sun, the ants, the dry spin effects. He was flying me towards help to doctors and nurses and hospital air con and a glass of cold water. Um, so Taria, I, Taria gets picked up second. I think Kate went first because they had to make trips. At one point, Taria was like, yeah, the helicopter left and came back. And I was like so worried they would never show up again. Uh, but they did. So that was great. But when she was got to the hospital, um, she was immediately placed into an induced coma. She was in that induced coma for a month. <gasps> when she woke up, she discovered that all of her fingers on her right hand and two fingers on her left hand had to be amputated. Oh, my God. She was in the hospital for six months. She's had over 200 operations and spent two years in recovery. And during the time that she was in the hospital, so she talks about having to have her bandages changed, how it was like the worst pain she's ever experienced. And it was daily. Like she had to to build herself up to endure this pain every day to get these bandages, bandages yeah, changed. I've and then at that, some point... burn victims, that, that, yes. that healing process and the bandage changing is just, it's excruciating. Awful. Yeah. And at some point they put her in a full body compression suit and mask. And she was only allowed to take that off for an hour a day. And the, the, I guess the idea behind it is that they wanted to smooth out the scars um, that were all over her body and her face. And so she actually wore that mask. I think it was for like two years or something. She wore the mask and she did remove it for the first time on a 60 Minutes Australia program. And I, I watched that episode and it's it's really nice. And through all of this, you know, Michael is, has been told, like, you know, she was burned, badly burned. She was mm -hmm. like, I don't want you to see me. He was like, you're insane. Like, the doctors told him, like, she's going to, she might die. Like, we don't think she's going to live through this. Like, she's been just ravaged. And he was like, if she lives, I'm going to marry her. Like, mm -hmm. I'm standing by her side. It's super sweet. Uh, there was a parliamentary inquiry into the Kimberly Ultramarathon and the organizers racing the planet. Uh, I guess that's when they discovered that they were unable to communicate properly between their checkpoints. And so it's like different checkpoints didn't know what was going on. Um, it took longer for the you know emergency services to get there, all of that stuff. So Taria actually launched a, a Supreme Court action against racing the planet. And in May of 2014, she did get an out-of-court settlement. I read something about it being $10 million. I hope so. But I'm, yeah. Um, she does do public speaking now. Uh, she, like I said, she did a TED, a TED Talk, a TEDx at Macquarie University in September of 2014. It was a great talk. I definitely, if you have a chance, just look her name up, Turia, T-U-R-I-A, Pitt. Um, she's, yeah, great. She's a great speaker. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with like she has this resilience that through, I guess, living with her dad and all these different things that she did and being a runner and having that endurance and the perseverance to get through an ultra marathon and just enjoying that kind of thing. Like she's it's like she took that same philosophy of getting through these like challenges and applied it to, you know, walking up two stairs or being able to um, move her elbow a little bit. She talks about in the TED Talk that she was unable 
to like her elbows were um, fused in a an L formation, and she had to go to physical therapy every single day and do a little bit of work at a time to unfuse her elbows. Just oh incredible pain. And at the same time, strength. She she told this really kind of hilarious story about how Michael was with her and she had these two physiotherapists like on either side of her and they were walking up like this little, it had like two steps. And it was like, she went up a step and he was like cheering for her. He was like, you're doing amazing. You know, like, and she was just like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> like she was over it already. And he was like, no, you got to celebrate everything. <laughs> so um, she says going through this experience made her appreciate People like Michael, like her mother, who are in her life and just unconditionally loved her and gave her all this support. And mm. I don't know. It's a really uplifting story. I mean, it's horrific what happened to her. Um, she did in 2022 appeared as a contestant on the sixth season of The Celebrity Apprentice in Australia. <laughs> I think I read an article that she didn't like it so much, but it was like interesting. Um, on May 8th of 2016, she competed in her first Ironman Australia competition finishing with a time of 13 hours, 24 minutes, and 42 seconds. And then on October 8th of 2016, she competed in the Ironman World Championship at Kailua Kona, Hawaii, uh, with a time of 14 hours, 37 minutes, and 30 seconds. As soon as she like recovered and got her range of motion back and all of that, she started ultramarathoning again. That is... I mean, she lost a lot of muscle mass and I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know how she like got back into that. I think I would have just been like, I'm good. I guess her dad, <laughs> right? Good. Taught her the grit. Right. Um, so her and Michael did, they got married and they have two children now. Um, Havaka, wait, Hakavai and Rahiti. Um, I think her mom is Aboriginal. I was, I, it didn't really talk about her uh, like ethnic background or race mm -hmm, or anything mm -hmm. like that. So I'm not entirely sure. But um, yeah, they showed a picture of her mom. She definitely looks at least Polynesian. Right. She's definitely an Islander. So <clears throat> She's not white. Happened, what happened with the other girl, the other runner that got burned? Yeah. Okay. So she, um, I did read that Kate Sanderson um, lost a portion of her foot so her face and kind of like the top part of her shoulders did not get burned, but the rest of her body did. And then um, and then her like half of her foot had to be amputated. And she was kind of distraught about that because I know ultra marathon was like a big part of her life as well. And mm -hmm. so she has like a little bit of a prosthetic and she does also ultra marathons, uh, bike riding, all of that stuff. So and her uh, two years after the fire, she and then um, her friend that she was running with, Michael Hull, was uh, one of the other men who got burned. Um, there was another man. I don't know if I put his name in here, um, who also these two other men were burned, but they were both in stable condition at the time. And there wasn't too much about them, I think, because these two the two women were just, I mean, in horrible condition. Uh, so the focus was kind of on them. But Kate and Michael Hull went back to the gorge two years after the fire. And Paul Cripps, that helicopter pilot who rescued them, flew them back to the site, which I thought was really nice. Um, yeah. And they say, like I said, it was his flying prowess, precision and quick thinking that was credited with saving the lives of the injured women. Uh, Taria didn't want to go back to the gorge. She was like, I'm good. Kate said, emotionally, it's a bit of a bit of closure for me. Taria says it's not going to make things better or worse for her. So she doesn't want to do it. But it's something important to me. This is Kate. There were mm -hmm. local volunteers who drove their cars 
uh, cars in through the burnt out fire zone and guided the ambulance and helicopters to where we were. All of those people with a ripple effect. You don't realize how people were affected. And I want to thank them. I also kind of need to move on, she said. Everyone who knew me before knows me as me. But to everyone who knows me from the accident, I'm the girl in the fire. I need to shake that label and just move on. Michael from Sydney, the Michael Hull, said he wanted to meet and thank the locals who helped the rescue efforts. He said, I think it's important to go back and thank them in person. Sure, there can be emails, but I think the right thing to do and the nice thing to do is to go back, shake their hand, say thank you and have a beer. That's very nice. Uh, And then part of me wants to tell them if it wasn't for you, we may not be here. Yeah. Oh, Sean Vandermeer. The the other man who was burned um, and sent to the hospital was Sean Vandermeer. So... Oh, I do have a thing that a spokesman from Racing the Planet said. The fire and its consequences are tragic and regrettable. They were not reasonably foreseeable. However, you know, obviously the inquiry found that the company was aware that there had been fires in and around the course on the day of the race and should have recognized the risk posed to competitors, staff and volunteers. So basically the Racing Planet was like, listen, we didn't know this could happen. We didn't know about it. We didn't know that bush fires move fast. Like, That's who would have nuts. predicted oh, yeah, that? We didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Well, and also it's like on the day of the race, you can see smoke. I feel like as a person who would be organizing race, I would want to make sure that everybody was going to be safe. And like, I would have, I would want to know everything about where that fire was yep. going. Should we change anything? Take every precaution. You know, like, yes. Every precaution. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, If you look it up, there are statistics on the race. It just says September 2011, men's winner, none, event abandoned. Women's winner, none, event abandoned. So that's good. (laughs) I'm glad they didn't have like an award ceremony or something, you know. Yeah. That would have been seriously. Just a little side note. When Taria and Michael got engaged, he chose a diamond from the mine that Taria used to work as a mining engineer. Uh, and I think at some point she like lost it on a trip, though. Something about she lost the... But anyway, it was like a big thing. And she was very happy about it. And he proposed to her in the Maldives. And then they went and snorkeled with manta rays. And I was like, oh, that's nice. That is nice. <laughs> yeah. So that is the story of Turia Pitt. And um, I do have an organization to support. All right. I saw this uh, really cool thing about the Mirawong language being revitalized in Kananura. And there's this place called the Mirawong Language Nest. It is a pilot program that started in 2013. It's still going on. And it uses immersion techniques to enable young children to learn Mirawong and exposes them to new language experiences. It's based on a model developed by the Maori in New Zealand. And the Language Nest is one of the first to operate for indigenous languages in Australia. And it is run. There are some like, um, you know, non-Aboriginal folks who help in terms of like setting up the program, but it's run, it looks like fully by Aboriginal women of the community. I don't see men in here, but I do see a number of uh, Aboriginal women who go and teach these kids uh, their language in an effort to keep it alive and keep interest in all that stuff. So I thought that was a good good place That's to start very good that pause. is called the mirawong yeah it's called the mirawong language nest and you can find it at m-i-r-i-m-a dot a-o-r-g dot a-u That's that right. is my organization cool yeah because you need to keep those <clears throat> languages alive seriously yeah for sure because they go away so jen mm-hmm. 
what would you take in your emergency preparedness kit uh, besides like a fire blanket? I, for <laughs> or, sure. <clears throat> I know. That's just like, mm-hmm. it's such a sad story. I mean, it's uplifting, but the whole, I mean, it's so tragic mm-hmm. what happened. But, yeah, you know, I was thinking about it, you know, because we did do a whole story on emus before. Now, I'm not sure exactly yes. where they were in that area, but just imagine if you could, <laughs> while you're training yeah. for your ultra marathon, most people train longer yes. than two weeks. Like, say you're training for like a year. Sure, sure, sure. You also yeah. are training your pet emu to travel with yeah. you along this, you know, your course. So that way, mm-hmm. maybe in any case of emergency, you just jump on the back of that emu and run the hell out of wherever you're at. <laughs> yes. I'm just, I mean, they're pretty, they're pretty badass, these birds, right? Uh, what What would you call that? Like an ultra marathon emu? Yes. Support animal? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> your ultra marathon support emu? Yeah, yes. That's great. That's all I'm saying. That's amazing. Right? I mean, that's a genius. That's pretty genius. I feel like they're already there, like available. Yeah. And I feel like they'd be You're giving them it. a job. Give them some good <laughs> yeah, food. Sure. Talk nice mm-hmm. to them. You know, like mm-hmm. comb out their, preen their feathers, you know, just take good Make care them of feel, them. Yeah. And I think they'll take good care of you too. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. I like it. Yeah. So that's, that's perfect. There you go. It's always tragic to talk about these stories and what happens, but it's always inspiring yeah. to know what somebody has gone through and how they overcame it. So it was a really cool story. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, thanks. Thank you again to Kristen White. That was a great suggestion. I was kind of scrolling through and I was like, this seems like an interesting story. And then I yeah. read, I was like, wow, this is kind of intense. Yeah, yeah, and super intense. Very cool. Yeah, thanks, Megan. That was great. I appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, also, so for for the next maybe mm, few more episodes, we might be set, you know, in in separate rooms. And I know probably we sound a little weird, but just just bear with us. We're still going to bring you these great we're stories. Through it. Just we'll we're going to get yeah. through this together, and then we'll be back, be back together. And the magic will will happen. <laughs> all that it's just far all away. That magic dot, all that yig dot magic. That's right. That's right. We all need to. We need to be in the yeah. same room. We need the sabers, and you know, occasionally I bring Pika. We, you know, it's like it's so magical. All the just extra stuff. It. I know. I'm surprised. I already said organization to support, and sabers just still laying here on the ground, like he's he's like not even paying attention. <laughs> he doesn't know. Yeah. <clears throat> Usually, this is the time where he gets up and shakes himself a bunch. He's like, "Oh, right. we're good. We're getting done." We're he done. comes over, yeah. sees me, and then stares at the door, like we're done. Right? We're done. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Well, to, I'll be happy um, when you're back. And yeah, exactly. But thanks to our amazing editor, Jonathan, for putting all yes. this together for us. We appreciate you. We appreciate it. So all right. Awesome. All right. Okay. Cool. Well, I guess we'll uh, enjoy uh, the story and we'll have another one next week. Excellent. You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jan and Megan, and edited by Jonathan Pillsbury. We'd love it if you can leave us a five-star iTunes review on Apple Podcasts. You can support us by following on Instagram or Twitter, listening and subscribing wherever you get podcasts or becoming a patron. Check out more on our website at yourgonnadieoutthere.com where you can see our awesome eco-friendly sponsors and nature nerd artisans page. 
If you'd like to send us your own stories or episode ideas, you can submit them through our contact form on the website or to our email, you're going to die out there at gmail.com. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.